open up your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. The title today is called, Called Back to Bethel. And we're going to see a change in Jacob's life like you've never seen it before. And he's never experienced it before. A changed life. Not only in word only or in name only, but actually in his core of who he is will be changed. And it's through a series of circumstances and places, but the most important is the fact that he was obedient to God. And then we saw God's response to that. Now, if you remember in chapter 34, it ended not well. Remember, God had told Jacob to take him and his family back there in Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. And then again in Genesis chapter 31, uh, verse 13, he said to them exactly where he wanted them to go. Go to Bethel. But Jacob really wanted to live his own life the way he wanted to live it. He wanted to go where he wanted to go and do what he wanted to do. And then sometimes it was out of fear, but most of the times it was just blatant. He just, in his own, leaning on his own understanding, he just did not follow through and do what God called him to do and where to go. In this case, Bethel. Instead, he decided he was just going to go to Sekoth and after Sekoth to Shechem. And at Shechem, we find that he may have been strong enough in his passivity of a, being a spiritual leader, a passivity of being the father of this and the head of this tribe. <clears throat> and because of that, his family um, and he reaped uh, rep, uh, repercussions from the disobedience. We see the fact that he was in the wrong place. He wasn't supposed to be in that, near that city. He was, not, he was supposed to be a leader and he was supposed to stand up and go to Bethel. Instead, he settled down in Shechem and then the city got a hold of him and his family. And you know the, the very sad story of Dinah going out and trying to meet some of the girls of the area. And then Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hittite, found her, took her, and violated or raped her. Then we see the sons coming and going overboard because dad took a passive position and he was more fearful of his own life and what the people in the area would do to him and his family. He chose to say nothing but his sons out of anger, out of bitterness, out of resentment and all the things that obviously would come from this situation of what they treated her like a prostitute, treated like a whore. And this was not tolerable for these two brothers, Simeon and Levi. And they went up there and they had a... They were deceptive to the people of that community. And when uh, Shechem and his dad came down to negotiate to be able to have Dinah as his wife. But don't let this all pass thinking it was just one-sided because we also saw in the scriptures that even uh, uh, Homar, the father, also was deceptive. He had a hidden agenda and they said, hey, we want to intermarry. We want to have these relationships. We want to give uh, the daughters to them and their daughters to us because once we come as one, then he was ahead of that whole community. And guess what? He knew he could gain all the wealth that God had given to Jacob. So they both had their hidden agendas. Because the two brothers thought there was no way in an entire community, this is what I believe, no way did they ever think that every single male, all men, because that was the requirement, all men would have to be circumcised. There'd be at least one out there that said absolutely not. But he and his father convinced them by using the same same um, temptations, the same, same way that people do today. The enemy will coerce a man to make a decision based on the, his flesh. In this case, hey, you can have their women. 
And if it wasn't the women that enticed them to be able to make the decision to get circumcised, it was for their wealth and the money and the land and what they could gain from that decision making. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It's still the same weapons the enemy uses today to entice a man to go against God's will. And sure enough, all men agreed, and they got circumcised. And then Simeon and Levi took advantage of the fact that these men could not dis- defend themselves. And they came in, as you know the sad story, and killed all the men. All these orphans, all of these widows, the decimation of a community absolutely was not God's will. God did not tell them to do that. They took it upon themselves out of their, their anger. What do you do with all that after that? What do you do? Jacob is afraid for his family, afraid for his own life, basically. Loss of everything that God had given him. But look in chapter 35 what happens. Then God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and dwell there. And make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. The whole Shechem deal here, the whole ordeal, that the incident that took place in Shechem was because Jacob went to Shechem instead of Bethel right from the very beginning. What a weight of responsibility knowing that you did not do what God asked you to do and because of that your family and, and an entire community was devastated. You not think your decisions have consequences? Of course they do for us. Sin never affects just you. It affects everyone around you. And we know this. And we see it played out right here in the life of Jacob and his family. But think about this. If he was just, would have just made that decision initially, look at what could have been spared. But also understand that God, by his grace, can take these things and turn them into good for those who love him. And Jacob had a love for him. He remember, he, he met him at Bethel, Bethel once before. He's, he's, God has spoken to him at other times. And we will see God going to show up once again during this time of, of crisis. It says, so he finally went uh, where God had told him to do, and that is to go to Bethel. Because the only cure for worldliness that is in and is separating you from your relationship with God is to... There's only one cure, and that is to separate yourself from the worldliness. Worldliness gets into your life. The only way you deal with it is you need to separate yourself from it. you got to cut it off. You no longer can allow a hook into you of the worldliness. And Jacob, the city of Shechem, had a, a, a hook in him and his family, and it caused the devastation. So it's, Jacob had to leave Shechem and go to Bethel. Now, in chapter 34, if you didn't catch that last week when we studied that, nowhere in chapter 34 God is ever mentioned. Ever mentioned. Not once. Not even in a peripheral. Why? Because when you're outside of the will of God, God is absent. Not that he's left, it's that you don't notice, you don't hear, you don't experience, you don't, you don't, you're not hearing a small, still small, small voice. There's a, there's a, you've separated yourself, you're, you're trying to avoid the things of God. When you're in sin, that's what happens. Still today, you're in sin, you're not being in God's will, you will avoid the fellowship with God's people, you will avoid reading the word of God, you'll avoid praying and talking to God because you just cannot handle the conviction that is in your heart. And you'll avoid it. But here in chapter 35, God is mentioned over and over again. Why? Because he's finally in the will of God. He's doing exactly what God's called him to do. He's coming back to Bethel. Ten times, over ten times, he mentions God. And if you take Israel and... um, and Bethel, as a form of representation of who God is governing Israel's life and Israel being the nation of Israel, it's another 11 times, just in this chapter alone. 
See, because when you're in the will of God and you're one and you're totally focused upon the things of God, then what's going to happen is God is going to fill your life. Chapter by chapter, day by day, God will fill your life when you're seeking after to be in his will. That's why people always tell me, I don't sense God. I don't hear from God. I don't do this. I don't do well, God has got you in a season of a, a desert experience, but stay in the word of God, stay in prayer, stay in fellowship, and watch this desert experience. You'll grow and mature. Eventually, you're going to see the fruitfulness that will come from that desert experience. Or, you, there's sin in the camp. Just like Jacob there was sin in the camp, and watch what happens. And this man, this, this man is going to be transformed right in front of our eyes from a passive husband, father, leader to one of a spiritual leader and what a spiritual leader is supposed to do. Watch, this is a perfect example for us. Watch what happens. And Jacob said to his household, he says, and to all who were with him, so his household, his immediate little family, but all of them that he oversaw and responsible for, the entire community. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. He gives three great commandments to them, right? These are huge commandments. Why? Because this is the very first time that we see he, he taking a leadership role in his family and as a leader of this community, and he stands to do what is right in the eyes of God. And he sits there because he's been so passive. Notice the fact that he says to them, to his whole house and everybody, put away the foreign gods. That means he knew they had foreign gods. And he allowed them as a father or as a husband, as a, as a, as a community leader, he allowed the, uh, the ungodliness, the, the false gods to reign in the lives of the people. You cannot do that. You know that your family, your, sister, your brothers, your, your wife, your kids have false idols that they worship, that they follow, that they do, and you don't say anything as the spiritual leader of your house? That's insane, man. But that's what Jacob did. The question is, how did he get the foreign idols? Well, you know the scriptures. Rachel was sitting on those little gods that Laban, her father, was looking for. Now, there's no word in the scripture that says, why didn't Jacob address those idols right there with Rachel and say, Rachel, are you out of your mind, woman? You took these idols from your father? They almost killed us all. Give me those things and get rid of them. No, he didn't say anything. He, again, as a husband, probably didn't want to have conflict with his wife and said, oh, I'll just let her do what she needs to do. As long as a happy wife, it's a you know, happy woman, is a happy life, happy family, kind of, whatever that saying is. No. Being a passive leader and allowing your wife to continue to do something she's not supposed to do and you don't want to address it because you're afraid, because she's going to get angry and be, make the house miserable, that's her problem. Pray for her. But you're still responsible to address the sin in the camp. Oh, but you don't know my kids. What do you mean you don't know? I don't need to know your kids. All I know is your kids are supposed to be in obedience to the parent. You're the spiritual leader. Your kids don't rule the house. God rules the house, and you're to be obedient and to follow through what he tells you and get out the idols. Yes, the music's got to go. The movies have got to go. The, the posters are half-naked guys from their teenage idols. American idols. It's got to go. Whatever that doesn't please God has to go. When they're not under your household, then those kids can do whatever they want to do. It's between them and God. But while they're under your roof, you're held responsible. It's, I can't, can't make it as simple as possible for you. So there's no question. There's no gray area. Right, man? You, you got me? There's no gray area in that, right? 
Because what happens is Jacob is going to see, and you're going to see the fruit of that passivity and not holding this. But here's what we see. God is doing a work in this man. For the very first time, he's, he's putting down the rules of doing what God has said to do. Get rid of these foreign gods and, and that are among you and purify yourselves. You need to be cleansed. You need to get, the, the worldliness has just dirtied and mucked you up, and you have got to get the worldliness out of your life. Whatever's influencing it and dirtying you up, you've got to get it out. It can no longer have an influence of you. And change your garments. Symbolism in the Bible is very, very important, and, and garments in the symbolism in the Bible for garments means character. Your, change, your character has to happen. Your attitude, your appearance, it, you, who you are in that inner person has to change. You can't say there you love Christ, you love the Lord, and you're, you're a Christian, and allow no change to take place in your character. It's got to change. What comes out of your mouth, how you talk, how you communicate, how you carry yourself. Do you look more like the world? Do you look more in line with what's pleasing to God? And what happens is we see here that he has taken a stance. And then look at the next verse. Then let us arise and go to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in the ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was at, by Shechem. So he made the stance, told everybody, no compromising here. The foreign gods got to go. Purify yourself no longer because this city of Shechem can ever affect. We're going to move out of here because it's affecting you. We're going to Bethel. We're doing exactly what God has asked us to do. And look what happened. They gave the foreign gods that were in their hands, gave them to Jacob. And the earrings. Now, he didn't say get rid of the jewelry. These earrings, this jewelry, the earrings were a form of, of pagan worship. It was representing who they worshipped by putting special things in their ears to show who they worshipped. That still happens today. That people will wear things that, that represent who they worship and who they follow. So they got rid of those pagan worship and, and, and trinket things to remind them of who they were worshiping. Gave it all to Jacob. And Jacob immediately did what with them? Buried them. They're dead to the, his family this forward, going forward. No longer are those alive and any have any influence of his family. They were buried at the tree. You and I... Anything that's in our lives, any, for, any idols, anything, any worldliness, any character, stinking attitude that we may be carrying, complaining and doubting, and all these other things that we can allow into our character of who we are, it's got to be placed at the foot of Jesus on the cross. You need to allow it to, to die and be buried in Christ. Let it go. Because if you don't let go of the sin that's in your life, it will bury you. There's no question. It will have effect on you and your family. What better than just God is calling us to just lay it at the feet. He's paid for the price for all of that. He's forgiven you if you would just repent. You know why? Because in Simeon and Levi's life, you notice at the end of uh, the chapter 34, verse 31, they did not repent. Their anger and their frustration and their things 
it just they felt justified in killing all of these men. That they had they rationalized why this it was it was it was definitely uh, the right thing to do. And there was no repentance, and the dad didn't do anything. But now he is. There's a change in the family. There's a change in dynamics. There's a fresh newness that can come into the family. And it's amazing how these idols that Rachel kept from her household of her father now had permeated into the community as a whole. Can't be there any longer. Jude, Jude 23 says, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 20, 24 says, it's kind of the same exhortation, he says, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in the true righteousness and holiness. We must. We must put off the old garments and put on the new garments, the scripture says. In verse 5 of Genesis here, chapter 35, it says, And they journeyed in the terror, or the fear of God, was upon the cities. That were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which was in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him, and he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because their God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. So we see here as they journeyed. That fear of God, that God put a fear of himself on the people of Shechem who would have come, and the Parasites and the Hippites, who would have come against Jacob and his, and his family as they were getting out of town. He put a fear on that community to keep them away from touching Jacob and his family. Why? Because that would have, if they came and killed Jacob and his family, that would have impeded God's redemptive uh, plan here. So that cannot have happened. So God put a fear in those people to keep them back. I believe, no doubt in my mind, that God does the same thing for you and I. That he puts a fear in someone to keep them away from you or keep us away from someone else. But there's something there that God says, no, 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 don't go there. Or no, no, no. Keep away from them. And I think as we pray, God, put a hedge of protection around us. He's putting his angels and, and with the swords around us. Or God just putting a fear in that man so he doesn't touch your life. Even though he may be threatening you from a, from a mountaintop experience, a mountaintop or a hilltop or a, a housetop threatening you. But God says, puts a fear in him to not touch you physically. And we see that exactly what happened with God doing here kept the people away, and then as they came into Luz, or Bethel, there in the land of Canaan, exactly where God wanted him to be, he then worshipped God. He built an altar right there, and he called it El Bethel. Obviously, it would not, I mean, <laughs> the challenge sometimes in our heads, at least in my head, maybe not you. But you see certain things take place and your mind can go down a path that says, it's fair for God to deal with them these ways, right? They're wicked people. They should be dealt with in a certain way. It's Jacob caused this problem. So why God, why didn't Jacob deal get be dealt with appropriately? Because they, he's the one that took the family Shechem. He's the one that should be facing these consequences. Why don't you just let that happen so maybe he'll learn from it? You know, it's like a parent saying to a child, let him touch the stove. Once he gets burnt, he'll never do it again. If he's going to go play with the stove after I told him not to touch the stove and he gets burnt, that's how you learn. He'll toughen him up. No, that's not how God works. God's grace 
is shown here in Jacob and said, you know, Jacob deserves all the consequences he's going to get because of his decisions he made not being a spiritual leader. But but God's grace comes in and says, no, no, I can do something with this life using the circumstances to actually mold and change this man to be in obedience with, with my calling. And so we see here that as he goes into and comes back to Bethel like he's supposed to, we see that not everything is now perfect. Just because you say, God, forgive me, I repent of all things, and you come back into fellowship with God, you're back into the word of God, you're back into prayer, you're back into doing exactly what God's called you to do and when to do it, and you think, oh, everything's going to be perfect and no more, you know, any more challenges in my life. Well, we, always, well we, also, we know that it rains on the just and the unjust. But we also see here in verse 8, also death still happens in families, and we see here that Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree, so the name of it was called Elon Bukah. So who is she? We don't know a whole lot about her. All we know is that when she was the Rebekah's nurse, she was Jacob's mom's nurse who probably was set out with her, uh, with her mom when she got married to his father and was there by her side, his nurse and maidservant kind of a thing. And we know that, that you know, very little of this woman in an account there, but we know that it was someone dear within the family. They were very close. Why? Because they named the place where they buried her. Like she was one of the family members, so so tight, because this Alon Bakoth means oak of weeping. So the family was weeping. You know this, this woman probably raised Jacob from his childhood, from birth. This is someone significant in his life. And then Jesus, then God appeared to Jacob again in verse 9 of chapter 35, when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also, God said to him, I am, all, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants after you. I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob sent up a, set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it, and Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. So here Jacob's family finally arrives to the place where God had told him to go from the very beginning. God then reveals to Jacob, immediately found great blessing being poured out upon Jacob right then and there. And then God himself appears to him right there in the flesh. And God blessed him and God called him his new name, Israel, governed by God. Here's a changed life. You're no longer governing your own self. It's all about self. Now it's, you're governed by God. It's all about God. That's when you know you've made the transformation. You Now you've died of self. You've denied yourself. You pick up your cross. You follow Jesus. You've, you know the scripture. But have you actually that been transformed in your life where you're actually doing that? Do you really deny yourself? Do you really pick up your cross daily? Do you really want to be governed by God? Do you really want to be led by Him? Do you really want to be obedient to Him and to please Him? That's where we want to be. And now this is where Jacob is. He's a changed man. He's a new name. He's a new identity. And God does the same thing in you. You're no longer the old, old man, the old woman. Well, women are never old. But the old men. You know, in, 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 but God has transformed and given you a new identity. 
one that's governed by him. And Jacob's life is being restored in his relationship with God. And this is a perfect example, is when you come back to Bethel, you're coming back to your first love. Do you remember your day of salvation? Do you remember the day when you gave your, your life to Christ? Not just peripheral, not emotionally, but with true, true surrender of your heart to God. And you knew when it happened because the first three times you did it, it was just emotion. It was caught up in the music. You're caught up in the moment. But this one, you know there was a transformation take place. You're now thinking differently. You're, 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 you're acting differently. You, you desire the things of God, the pursuing him and the word of God. You're wanting, you're devouring the word. You're, you can't wait to talk to him about things. You know there's a transformation that's taking place. Do you remember that day? I hope so. Because if you don't, you need to come back to your first love. Come back to your Bethel when you, the day you got saved. Remember when you got saved. Come back. Matter of fact, you, you and I can examine our lives and say, am I in love with Jesus more than the day when I got saved and I was so grateful and, uh, because of his grace and his mercy upon me? Can I say that I still have that depth of love for my Savior? Jacob, remember, go back to Bethel. And he repented by getting rid of the idols, cleansing himself, purifying, purifying himself. He did the first works by building an altar and worshiping God as he did once again. And then God then just graciously reminds him of the promises that he gave his Abraham Isaac, and to him personally. That he was going to make him a great nation, and great nations and kings would come from his lineage, his genealogy. Did that man deserve it? No. Did he earn it? No. It's by God's grace. It's his faithfulness, God's faithfulness. that he restored this man, Jacob. And he poured out, Jacob poured out a drink offering. This is the very first place in the scripture that we see a drink offering being made. The idea of a drink offering is found in the Bible in many places. We see it in Exodus 29, Leviticus 22. We see it in Deuteronomy, in Numbers 15. Paul considered it pouring out of his life before God to be like the pouring out of a drink offering of God's altar. We see that in Philippians 2.17 and 2 Timothy 4.6. Our lives are to be just like poured out offerings. The drink offering is not for you. Your life is not for you. Your life is to be like a drink offering to those around you so it's a refreshment to their lives. Fathers, you're to be a drink offering. You're pouring out your life and pouring it into your children and your wife. We must learn. We must be more disciplined in being a poured, out, poured offering out to not only your family, but those around that people God brings into your, into your life. That means you, we must die of self even more to do that. But we see here Jacob's heart of worship is one of gratitude toward God and what God had shown him grace. And when we look back on our life and we should never have the attitude of saying, I was robbed of my life. I was robbed of all the fun. I was robbed of this and robbed of that. Instead, our hearts should be God has blessed. And that, that change of character, that attitude change, 
will determine if you have a a life or a walk with God that's going to be one of miserable or one of of uh, of this of a, a delightful walk. Because you've met Christians, I'm sure none of them, none of you here, but other churches, you've met Christians that they say they're Christians, but they're the most miserable Christian you've ever met. Versus one of just a, a pure delightfulness of what God has done in your life and you're so grateful of what God has continued to do in your life. And then we see in verse 16, then they journeyed to Bethel. And when they were there was, was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, which is, means Bethlehem. Uh, Rachel labored in childbirth and she had hard labor. And now it came to pass when she was in hard labor, labor that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you will have this son also. So why did they journey from Bethel? They were supposed to dwell there. Why did he get up and take his wife who's pregnant? Now, obviously, God blessed them. They show up in Bethel. Guess what happens? God blesses uh, uh, Rachel with being pregnant. Blessed being in God's will. You, there's even blessings with having another child here. Remember, back in the day, they were competing. Remember the sisters competing and even using their maidservants to try to do one more than the other? I can have one more child than you. Here God is blessing Rachel with a baby at the very end. But it is truly becomes the very end of her life because we see here that she had hard labor. Now what does that mean? More than likely she was probably bleeding out. Couldn't control the bleeding or whatever it is. All we know is that she and, and the midwife was having a conversation and Rachel expressed herself of the fact that do not fear, because the midwife responded to her by saying, do not fear, you will have this son also. So she must have said, we, this, this baby's got to be born and she must have been struggling and wasn't sure what was going to happen and she wanted this to happen. And then what happened? And so it was in verse 18, as her soul was departing, as she was dying. And she must, she must have known it, for she died. And that she called, as she was just about to die, she calls his name, this baby's name, Ben-Onai. But look what Jacob's response is. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel, at the, her last breath, is saying, what? This is the son of sorrow, Ben-Onai, ben, son of sorrow. And Jacob said, no, 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 no. This boy cannot have this in his name for the rest of his life and, and remind him that he, his, his mom, my wife, died uh, at birth. And so he changes his name right at that moment and calls his name the son of my right hands or Benjamin. Now, that was wise for Jacob to do that. Perhaps he rightly sensed the special place God is going to use this son, Benjamin, or to remind himself because he just lost his wife, the wife he loved so dearly. The, right of the, the, the son of the right hand means strength. It means a son of honor. It means it's going to be his greatest strength to continue in his life will be the fact that God has blessed him with Benjamin, this son. We see some scripture that's really, really, I, I just love, and I'll give it to you for you to write down for those who are taking notes. But it says the fact that God uses this right hand as a, as a method of strength and honor. I'll give the first one. It's Exodus 15, 6. It says, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. Strength, honor. Psalm 16.8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. Such stability.
God's strength and honor are for us. He says, and he says, my soul follows close behind you. You are my, you are right hand upholds me, Psalm 63.8. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you'll revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me, Psalm 138.7. The power of the right hand as a symbol we see. In Colossians 3.1, as Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, the position of strength and honor, we sit there with him, as you know, because it says, if then you were raised with Christ Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. We must pursue the things of God. Seek first his righteousness and, 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 and all these other things will be added unto you, the scripture says. In Matthew 6.33. Seek the kingdom first. His righteousness. And allow him to add to your life what is good and right according to his will. Will you take those steps of faith and trust in him? And then we see in verse 19, So Rachel died and buried at the way of Ethra, that is Bethlehem, and Jacob set a pillar on her, on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Remember? How much Rachel wanted children? Remember back in chapter, ooh, it seems so long ago, chapter 30? <laughs> I think it was first, verse 1. She begged him for another child. What did she say? Give me a child or I'll die. Guess what happened? She got a child and, and she died. Both became true. Then we see in verse 21, Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Edar. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Reuben is the firstborn. We might expect some better conduct from the firstborn. He's 30 years old probably, about 30 years old right at this point. A lot of traumas happened in the family. Lost Deborah, now lost uh, Rachel. There's a lot of sorrow, a lot of loss taking place. And I give you a words of caution. When someone has lost a loved one, be very careful in that time. Because even in the family unit, be very careful. And, and leaders of men, you must watch over your family. Because with those dynamics, those, those emotions, people can, can there's a, some challenges can happen. I've, I've been meditating on this scripture. And I'm like, why would the oldest son at 30 years old sleep with Bilhah? It is absolutely against that culture. There should have never happened. It didn't happen today. But why would, was she so emotional and then he was comforting her in some way? I don't know what it was. That's what keeps coming back that they, during this emotional time, there was no check in the, in, the, in the emotions. And this man slept with Bilhah. And Israel's response is that he heard it. As we know, you would think, what would, what, why is, that's all we hear is Israel heard it? But we know in chapter 49, not only will, when it comes to 40, chapter 49, will uh, Israel will deal with not only Reuben, but with Simon and Levi. Because they will all be disqualified themselves from the higher calling of Abraham's blessing. That Reuben will lose his firstborn rights. So will Simeon and Levi, and the fourth son, Judah, will bring forth the Messiah, according to God's purpose and will. 
And then the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Essachar, Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, was Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. And these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. So we see the grace of God of even a dysfunctional family as this. A spiritual leader wasn't even a spiritual leader for years. And finally he hears and finally surrenders and becomes a man after uh, 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 you know, God's will and the fact that he's following through and going to Bethel. Yes, there's all kinds of craziness in the family. There's death in the family. There's sin in the family still with Reuben. And yes, God will deal with that uh, accordingly. But God still uses these 12 sons to bring about God's redemptive plan. That's the grace of God. Because he chose them to do what God needed to have done. And then in verse 27, then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. So more than 20 years ago, Jacob left his home thinking his father's death was at hand. Now they're fine. He comes back and he, you know, he's about 120 years old now, Jacob. Dad, we will see here is uh, much older, but we see that all of this is taking place. And nowhere in any of the scriptures do we see that even though he was only a few miles away, Jacob, from his father, did he go down and actually visit him on the weekend. Nowhere. He just, it was so close to just a day trip down and back. And nowhere do we see that he sees his father until now when he comes and into the place. And we see here in verse 28, now the days of Isaac were 180 years. He's 180 years old now. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So here he is, 180 years old. If you remember, the last time, you know, with significance, it was 43 years earlier, if you remember. He was sitting there saying, I'm going to die, and everything's not going well. I've got aches and pains where I never had before. I think I'm going to die. No, God allowed him to live for 43 years. And now at 80, 180, he dies. And we see that nothing is said but two brothers, two twins come together, Esau and Jacob, and bury their father. Nowhere does it say. Esau saying, bro, what are you doing? You were supposed to come down to eat him with me. You lied to me and have a family squabble at that, at that moment. We don't see anything that ended up happening. All we see is that they were focused on burying their father, and they certainly did. And they worked together to do that. United by the death of their father. Now, we're going to get into chapter 36, but we're not going to cover all of 36. You have a task. You're going to go back home. You're going to sit down with your family and dads and, and moms. You're going to read those all of those names to your children. Because I want the kids to have fun today listening to dad try to pronounce all of those words. So we're going to leave it to you guys to minister to your family today, reading all those names. Because that's all that is, is we will see here, it's um, in chapter 36, it is now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau, Harry, is going to give you his lineage of all of his kids that are coming about. And there are a lot, as we know. And as we take a look at that, you're going to see some very significant names, Amalekites. Hip bites, some significance as you study the Old Testament. You see, these people were against God's people of, of, of Jacob's lineage. Remember that the southern, um, southern eastern part of uh, the Dead Sea, which is in the Mount Seir, which is Petra, the Jordan area. So that's where they dwelt. And as we continue to study through the scriptures, we're going to see, as we look at these things, that Esau's cry to 
um, Isaac, if you remember from the beginning when Jacob took the blessing from him. Remember, I, Esau came in from getting the game and getting the stew and everything ready, and he finds out he lost. He says, he cried out to Isaac, having, you only have one blessing? My father, only one blessing? Is there anything for me? And then because he's part of that lineage, he, God did bless Esau. We found that he was a very wealthy man. He had many, many servants. He had 400 men, warriors coming up with him. You know, I mean, he's, he had lots of wealth. But, but, we find as it continue, for like verse 9, and this is the, uh, the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites of Mount Seir, we see that uh, Edom and Edomites are actually mentioned 130 times in the Bible because they dwelt and interacted with Israel and his tribe so closely but when the Israelites came through the wilderness of the promised land, if you remember, in the time of Moses, in Numbers chapter 20, verse 21, what did they do to the God's people when they were coming from Egypt into the promised land? They hindered them and they refused. Those Edomites would refuse the, the Israelites passing through their land. They became a great discouragement and, uh, and roadblock to the nation of Israel. Even so, God commanded a special regard to the Edomites. We see in Deuteronomy 23.7, it says, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. So there was a, a respect that God said you had to have between brothers in that respect. But through all the prophets and through all the Jeremiah's and the Ezekiel's and the first Samuel and second Samuel and second uh, Kings, as you go through the Old Testament, even to Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill the young Jesus was an Edomite from the time Islam conquered the Middle East. The region has been virtually wiped out. There's nothing dwelling down there in that area. It's unoccupied. There's a few Bedouins down there. Military outposts because of Jordan and those things. That's all that is down there now. It's been brought to nothing. Just like the book of Obadiah said. It, Obadiah records an extended prophecy against Edom that God said would happen because they came against the nation of Israel. You, if a nation goes or a people goes against his people, what will happen? <laughs> uh, read the scriptures you'll see you'll be, you won't last you won't last you'll be gone and then finally if you look at the last the, the verses 10 through 43 you'll see all about the chiefs of the sons of Esau you'll see the, the boar she bore uh, Amalekite uh, to Eliphaz and if you remember the Amalekites they became no, just absolute enemies against Israel and it goes on and on. But enjoy the read today in chapter 36 and all those names. I think you'll have fun uh, working through all those names. But the main message today, if you have a distance, whatever that may be, the distance from God, God is calling you back to your Bethel. He's calling you back to your first love. Come back to Jesus. And find rest for your soul. Amen.